I'm Leanne Spencer, founder of Body Shop Performance Limited, best-selling author, TEDx speaker, and your host. This is the Remove the Guesswork podcast, the show where I interview influential people in the health, fitness, and well-being space to bring in the latest ideas on how to optimize your mind, body, and well-being. The show is brought to you by my company, Body Shop Performance. We create total solutions to optimize your health by focusing on sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. We work with busy professionals on a one-to-one basis for six or 12 months using the latest science and technology. And Body Shop also work with businesses who want to create a culture of energy, vitality and performance and position well-being as a competitive advantage. Find out more at bodyshopperformance.com and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Remove the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer and my guest this week is Giles Watkins. Giles has 30 years experience in the global business. He's worked for organizations like Shell, McKinsey, Coates, PLC, looking after teams of up to 600 people, turning over up to $200 million in revenue. But he found as he got towards the end of his career, he enjoyed the coaching roles, the coaching aspect of his roles more. So what he now does is coaches and runs a group for Vistage, another group for Abakin. But he's interested in lots of other things as well. Travel, cricket, running, He volunteers for a homeless shelter as part of his local church. And more relevantly to this conversation, he is the author of a book called Positive Sleep, a holistic approach to resolve sleep issues and transform your life, which is the book that I've just finished reading. Absolutely loved it. But first of all, Giles, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It was great. I do apologize for the dog heckling you in your introduction. That's fine. I can pretty much guarantee that every time I hit record... She'll hear a noise and start barking. It's there you go. like clockwork. But anyway, don't let it deter us. Giles, firstly, let's just talk a bit about your own background because what I've just described there doesn't shout sleep expert, but obviously you've always slept. Presumably you've had issues around sleep, which is what sort of pushed you into that, that area. So tell us a little bit about what prompted you to write the book. Thanks. Yes, Leanne. Well, what happened with me is I've been a great sleeper into my 20s and even to my 30s. And even though I was traveling quite a bit with my work, I was still sleeping fine. And then in about 2002, I was engaged to be married at the time, working for Shell, large organization. And as often happens in large organizations, they decided to have a reorganization and we all had to reapply for our jobs. And whilst that was something I'd been through before in previous times, I'd not been engaged to be married at that point. And I guess... I reacted quite differently to the way I'd reacted before to that situation because the context was different. You know, I had this vision of getting married, building up, having a family and building a home. And I guess I saw myself as the primary wage earner to do that. Mm. And suddenly my job was at risk in an organization, which up to that point had felt quite secure in. And that really jolted me. And as a result, I started having sleep issues. I would call a trigger point. And I think with most people, there is a trigger point Mm. where suddenly there's a disconnect which stresses them and they start to have an issue. Then on top of that, life starts to happen. So if you've got this disconnect as I had, then, you know, my mum died, we changed country, I became a dad, which is never often quite difficult for your sleep because of Mm. kids disrupt your sleep, et cetera, and changed jobs and countries several times after that. And as I became more senior as well in, in different organizations I worked with, all those things, I think, compounded upon it. So typically, as I said, there's a trigger and then other built things build upon it. And what, just what was a typical night of sleep like in, back then? 
when you say sleep disruption, sleep issues, what, what did it feel like? What were you going through? Well, to start with, it was waking up a bit earlier and getting up early. So say waking up at five rather than six or 6.30 and thinking, oh, the wait now, I'll just go and do some work. Mm. Didn't necessarily correspond to going to bed earlier. Right. So I was starting to shorten my night because I was anxious about my job and hence I was working more to compensate for that. Mm. As time progressed, it would look far more severe. So at the height of my sleep problems, I would often not be able to keep myself awake much going about 9 p.m. And I'd wake up at 3 and I would never go back to bed again. And I would then get up at 3 and I would either read or more typically work mm. and then go off to the gym at 6. And you know, I was into a cycle of very short sleep, being constantly fatigued, and then going with that, starting to eat very unhealthy because when you're constantly tired and short of sleep and probably not in a great place you don't think i must eat some more broccoli mm. you think oh toast and marmalade oh pasta oh you know you, you tend to reach for the comforts foods for pizza and all those sorts of things yeah and of course yep. that that affected my weight and my fitness and and that's why when i in the book i write a lot about what i call a holistic approach because i feel that when you look at how you, you can address sleep issues a lot of it is around a whole bunch of things that aren't often, you know, certainly nothing to do with taking tablets. It's mm. a whole bunch of other things that can really help you sleep better. Oh, yeah. As I'm sure you know, when we have a short night of sleep, certain hormones like ghrelin and leptin become disrupted, ghrelin being hunger and leptin being satiety. So more hunger hormone, less satiety mm. hormone, telling us to put the brakes on eating. The brain craves glucose. So it could be often be a recipe, pun intended, for, for poor eating when you've had a short night of sleep, which is obviously what you found experientially. How did you resolve the issues of sleep? What was, what was the crunch point for you? Well, the crunch point for me was that I was studying a master's in coaching and consulting for change at INSEAD, the European Business School. I was actually studying at their Singapore campus. And I was doing this at the same time as working. So I was on this one of these sort of four days every 10 weeks release programs. And to qualify for the masters we had to write a thesis about something we wanted to change in our lives and I was wondering what to choose and I saw a TED talk around that time by someone who linked short sleep with Alzheimer's mm. and that was it right as soon as I saw that TED talk I thought even though the link is you might say emerging not completely proven if there's any chance that I can improve my chances of not getting that mm. disease through sleeping better, then I should take them. And so that was the moment when I thought I must do something. Yeah. Interesting. So is someone in your family got Alzheimer's or do you know enough about it to know that it's not something you fancy having to deal with? The latter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my father-in-law has very recently died from Alzheimer's but other chronic diseases as well he was in a poor shape by the end we do a lot of fundraising to raise money for Alzheimer's research it is a hideous thing I mean it's no nice way to go but that really you know to lose your mind before perhaps you lose your physical functions is a really unpleasant prospect so so that did it for you that was sufficient for you to say I need to get on top of my sleep so what did you do well the first thing I did was go and see a GP in the UK that was reminiscent of 
Reginald Perrin going to see the Victor G in the old Four Rise of Reginald Perrin 70s sitcom where he'd go and see the, the company doctor and he'd basically say, he'd describe the symptoms and the doctor would say, I've got it far worse, Reggie, take two of these. Hmm. And it was it was a bit like that when I went to see the GP who basically spent 10 minutes telling me how actually I was sleeping quite well compared to him and all the problems he had. And then he prescribed wow. some sleeping pills, which I walked straight out of the surgery and ripped up the prescription and put it straight in the bin because I was sure that that was not the answer. Then I shared it with my brother, who happened to recommend a book that I could look at, which started to talk about mindfulness techniques to help you with sleep. So I started with those techniques. And then I also, through other conversations with other people, began to understand the link between diet and exercise and sleep, Hmm. some of which you've already alluded to. And as a result, decided to take some action around my diet and my exercise. One thing that really alarmed me, and I'd already known a bit about it as I began to research it, was the link between caffeine and sleep and how caffeine is obviously effectively acting as a break on your sleep is interfering with the natural system around sleep. And I thought, well, I'll give it up for a month because it'll be a good thing for me to do and I'll just see how it affects my sleep hopefully beneficially by giving up. And after the pain of giving up coffee a month, anyone who's ever done that, because I don't drink tea, black tea, or anything, it's the only caffeine really I have. It was so painful for, for those sort of four or five days where it feels like you've got a permanent migraine because mm. I was a seven and espresso a day man. So let's be honest, I, had a, I was addicted to coffee. Mm. So when I then gave it up, I did feel a lot better for it. And I thought, I'll, do, I'll go another month and then another month. And that was the end of June 2015 and have had a coffee since. Now, I'm not coming on this call saying to everyone, you've got to give up coffee. I'm saying I found that that was a major help to me in terms of getting control of my sleep Yep, was that. So it was a combination of some mindfulness techniques, improvement in diet and exercise, giving up coffee, and then getting into this philosophy that I write about in the book of, of bookending your night, mm. saying, okay, I'm going to set aside, say, for example, I'll give you an example of my case, between 10 and 6 for for sleep or for just being in bed and relaxing or whatever. And as a result of that, I'm going to make sure by about 8, 30, 9 o'clock, I stop using tablets and mobile phones and all those sorts of things. And I disconnect. I don't do any work after that time. Or if I were to do anything, I would write on paper. And equally, I have to have an alarm, use an alarm clock, not reach for the, the phone and don't start engaging with emails and so forth. So it's not just... Bookending your, it's not just creating that space for your night, it's also having a bit of buffer either side. Okay, cool. So we're going to come back to some of the tips that you might have for, for people to get a better night's sleep, perhaps some of the lesser known stuff. But let's get into some of the book. Do you think that sleep has been so decommoditized? I mean, you do in, the, in chapter one. I'll just read one of the paragraphs here. You have put one of the main reasons for this is our increasing focus on work partially derived from attainment at work and the wealth that can accumulate from it. Material riches and the associated status that derives from this is seen as a hallmark of success. And now that so many of us can carry our work around with us on portable devices, the pressure to work is always there. Do you think that's one of the reasons why we've just bumped sleep down those priorities and started to devalue it? I think so. And I think because most of us were never really taught the value of sleep, and mm. sleep science, the birth of sleep science, you 
read about it, it seems to vary from anything between 100 years ago to it's only something in the 1950s. It's still a relatively new mm. topic and relatively undiscovered. So there was, there's been very little education of people until quite recently where there's a fair amount of press about it as to what the benefits of sleep were. So it seemed to be something almost disposable, somewhere else you can cut a corner. And I think both the working pressures that you talk about were one factor. The other factor was that electric lights became prevalent and then TV became more prevalent and then mm. the internet and all these other things you had. And that's what leads researchers to say that in the 50s, both in the US and the UK, we were sleeping one to two hours more than we are now. Mm. So if you put all those pressures together and a basic ignorance as to why sleep is important and the fact that you can go and see a doctor and he can say, I've got it far worse. Hmm. And doctors themselves, I believe, don't study sleep that much as part of their mm. their qualifications. So there's when you seek medical advice, it's not, you know, they can often be prescribing sleep almost for some of the ailments they might be seeing mm. people. And I don't think that's so often the case. It's mm. much more like they'll just say, oh, and as part of that, you might have a sleep issue and here's some tablets. Yeah. I think we're starting to see that reversed, aren't we? I mean, there's your yeah. book. There's two books that you mentioned in your book by Ariana Huffington, The Sleep Revolution. Matthew mm. Walker's brilliant book, Why We Sleep, which is just a rich volume of so many gems when it comes to sleep, but in quite an easy to digest way. I don't know how you found it, but it's, it's you know, it's a, a thick book, but very, very readable. Yeah, I mean, I think we are starting to see things turn around a little bit, but there is quite a bit of machismo around sleep still, I think. It's one of the things that gets cut as soon as we feel pinched. You mentioned, we talked a little about your background with sleep, but to what degree are the good habits around sleep set as a child? I think, like most habits, it has a strong influence. I think one good habit I developed, which saved me at certain times in my really short sleeping phase, which was a phase of several years, really, was na is napping. Mm. Naps taken at the right time of day for the right amount of time can really help you if you are having sleep problems. They're more than just a sticking plaster. They genuinely can help you. Mm. So I developed that habit as a child, both at the, my nursery school, aged four, you know, when the teachers had a coffee break in the morning, they'd tell us to put our heads on the desk and have, it was called heads down, and you'd, you'd, set the, you'd put your head on the desk and have, you know, 15, 20 minutes of, of quiet time. Mm. And my parents were very fond of a nap at the weekend after lunch, and they took tell us to go away and play or just be quiet or even have a nap. So I think that was a positive thing. Mm. I think, interestingly, that also my father taught me when I was nearly 10 that if I wanted to pass an exam that I found difficult, a good time to study was first thing in the morning before mm. breakfast. And again, that stuck with me. And I think that that is a wonder, it was a wonderful gift, but like many things that are wonderful gifts, they don't always serve you in every circumstance. And I then exaggerated that by compounding how early I was getting up, six o'clock, five o'clock, four o'clock, and ultimately three o'clock, to address, you know, work on different issues that I wanted to work on from a, from a career point of view. Mm. And that was, again, another habit that was formed and unintentionally had, had positive, positive benefits for the first decade. Mm. And gradually later on, started to have negative benefits, negative connotations, I should say. Yeah, and I think, like as you say, like most habits, 
embedded in at childhood, embedded at childhood, are far more likely to last into adult life. So the importance of napping, but would there be anything else that you, for anyone listening in who's got young children, is there anything else you would add to that in terms of good sleep discipline or sleep hygiene for, for children? For, for the parents or for the children? For the parents to teach the children. For the parents to teach them. I, I think, yeah, I mean, certainly keeping phones and keeping tablets away from kids sort of just before they go to bed and yeah. first thing in the morning is a great habit. Uh, certainly the researchers in Holland that I quote quite extensively in the book from uh, an organization called Sleep, Els van der Helm and some of her colleagues, mm. they liken it a bit to an old car. The prefrontal cortex takes some time to warm up. You know, it takes maybe an hour to warm up. So whether you're an adult or a child, if you can stop loading too many new things into it mm. first thing in the morning, it's it's a great thing to just let the day in. So I think I think that whole discipline around, you know, as often people do, you know, put kids to bed, read them a story, have a bath before that, you know, all that, all that kind of old-fashioned routine about mm. the winding down and the quiet time for kids and the same thing in the morning. Yeah. And just, you know, immediately stick them in front of the TV at 6 a.m., but, you know, have some time with them and, you know, letting the day in like that. I think those are really great habits mm. and they would stand them in great stead. But some of the stuff around sleep training for children, that's, that's really a we, I remember we used Gina Ford. I think it's quite a sort of controversial methods, but that's, there's a, there are specialists you can read about that mm. when it comes to actual sort of baby training. But those sort of habits, yeah, they're great. And yeah, sleep, the only thing I'd say about naps are that typically taken before 3 p.m. is best because the later you take a nap, and I've experienced this myself, sometimes I'm really shattered. Yeah. I go have a nap at 5 p.m. It does affect my sleep at night. Yeah. Whereas if I have a nap just after lunch or even in the morning, it's far better. It won't affect me. Yeah, agreed. It's interesting what you say about the nightly routine we have with children. I have a sleep staircase concept that we talk about a lot, which is as adults, we don't tend to have that same relaxing set of metaphorical steps that we follow in the evening. Mm. You know, we'll come in, late workout. We might check our bank balance, watch the 10 o'clock news, and then try and get into bed. Whereas a child, you know, you would, you would have these little steps that you would take them down to you know, bath, mm. story, cuddle, and so on. So if we can start mimicking that evening routine, I think that would serve us very well for sleep as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit more about that study with Nick Van Dam and Els van der Helm that you just mentioned around sleep and performance for leaders. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's for me, it was one of the cornerstone pieces of work that I looked at when I was writing the book. Basically, what they've noticed is that the higher order mental skills, if you like, the ones that are generally done within the prefrontal cortex, which is the area where we do all our thinking, our main thinking, that is extremely well benefited by a good night's sleep. Unfortunately, the reverse is also true. So it would appear that if we sleep poorly, and by poorly, I mean both quantity and quality, these executive functions are really affected, much more so than, say, our physical functions. Mm. There's four areas that I think are, are particularly strongly affected in terms of leadership behavior that get affected if you're not sleeping well. One is results orientation, because to really bring about good results orientation, you've got to be able to both focus on things at a forensic level sometimes and then go up to the strategic level. You know, almost like the, heli the ability to be like a helicopter, yeah. if you like. Yeah. Some other 
researchers have called it the difference between being on the balcony and in the dance mm. when it comes to being involved in business as well. And as soon as you get into the stage where you're not as well rested as you might be, you tend to lose that. And in America, I think if you've gone 20 hours without sleep, it's equivalent from a cognitive point of view to having a 0.1% blood alcohol level. Mm. And in America, that means you're, you'd be breathalyzed and been shown to be you know, drunk in charge of the vehicle. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. the degree of impairment it has. Exactly. So we, yeah. we, nowadays, in the 80s, it was different. But nowadays, people are so much more aware of that something, are really much more cognizant of it. They'd never do that, most of us. Mm. But we would, many of us still think after 20 hours, it's still good to be trying to problem solve or write a presentation mm. or a pitch for a business or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. That's one. The second one that's linked is problem solving. And the mental capacities that support that, particularly around pattern recognition, again, are severely in, uh, impaired by that sort of lack of sleep. And this is where naps can really help you. And again, there's quite a bit of research that shows if you take a nap before 3 p.m. and then you go back and look at the problem that you were looking at just before you had the nap, suddenly your ability to solve it and spot patterns and actually make an informed, intelligent, creative solution emerge mm. is far superior. Mm. A third area which I really suffered from when I was short sleeping is seeking different perspectives because the last thing you want when you're really tired is for someone to come up to you, for example, at the end of the management meeting, has happened to me quite often in my last role, and say, oh, Giles, I've just thought, you know, I know we've decided to do X, but I've just did a couple of things, that, a couple of brainwaves have come to me that I just wanted to, you know, add in. And when you're shattered, you don't want to hear that. Mm. Whereas actually, often, that's the way a lot of good people work. They'll suddenly have a reflection and say, can I just, yeah. something's just come to me, can I just share that? When you're too tired, you just can't take that in. And also, it really affects your learning process in that way. So you, one of the three stages of learning, this is sort of the, the before learning when you're encoding the information. Then there's the after learning where you're consolidating it. And then there's also the, the, sort of the third stage, which is the, the retrieving it back from mm. memory. And all those are really impaired if you're not sleeping well enough. But if you're sleeping properly all those three states are much more efficient in, in terms of your night. And that makes a huge difference. And the last one is around supporting others. And, you know, good leaders are very good at supporting others. It's not all about them. They're much more empathetic around that. And in your antennae, you just seem to sort of get retracted, I think, when you're shattered. Yeah. Your ability, for example, to pick up on cues, non-verbal cues goes right down, or you might even Either, either miss them or interpret them in a completely different way. Mm. And all those sorts of things from a leadership point of view are, yeah. are critical. So those are the kinds of things that have been highlighted. And even as I recount them to you, it feels like I could tell you a dozen stories about how I fell into all those traps mm. in, my, in my time as a leader. And some organizations, I'm thinking Zappos as, as one example, Google is another, are now prioritizing sleep in such a way that allow you to come in and have naps in little sleep pods. What's your view on that? Do you think it's something that employers should be actively encouraging? I mean, not necessarily in the workplace, but should there be more focus put on the importance of sleep from an employer's perspective? Or is this something you think the individual should be responsible for solely? 
no, I'd love to see a greater focus on sleep in the workplace. But someone talked to me the other day and said, when would you start to think we were getting to real success on this? I'd say, actually, when a FTSE 250 CEO starts getting up and talking about it, yeah, you know, maybe even at a quarterly results meeting and says, yes, you want to understand what's actually going on underneath the numbers in this organization. Well, what's going on is we're actually really encouraging people to come to work actively rested, or properly rested, and we're starting to see the results. Yeah. And I see, yeah, I mean, I think the sleep pod thing will grow. And I think things will happen technologically that will support this. Mm. And it may seem like fantasy at the moment, but one of the things that Ariana Huffington mentions in her book, the book that you mentioned, The Revolution, is the possibility one day that we will have developed the technology that will give us something equivalent to the breathalyzer or lack of sleep. Mm. Now, why does that matter? You're talking about why would organizations care? Well, if you're, for example, an organization involved in logistics, the line that is related to deaths through drowsiness for driving, particularly around trackers, is going up. And the line that relates to deaths through alcohol abuse and so forth, supposedly, as I understand it, is going down. Mm. So before long the impact of short sleeping and the dangers of it for for people driving will be even more lethal than alcohol abuse. Mm. And well, not so much alcohol abuse, but alcohol-related driving incidents. Yeah. So I certainly think the organizations can do a lot to speak to particularly small and medium-sized businesses. One of the things I'd always do with them is actually start the conversation as to what are you going to do in your organization to encourage better sleeping habits and Mm -hmm. to model it and to show people. So I think organizationally things can be done. However, as you and I know, often with an organization, if you want things to really stick, the role modeling by the leader and then his his or her leadership team is one of the most effective ways to bring that Mm -hmm. about. Yeah, agreed. So for the last few minutes then, let's talk about some of the, perhaps the lesser known stuff. So two, three tips for individuals to help them sleep better, have better quality and composition of sleep. One that I think is not so well known is the use of mindfulness techniques when you wake up. Mm -hmm. And I use something called body scanning, which is maybe well known as a tip, a, a a trick but it's not something that people often think about when they when they wake up and it's literally if you're lying there start thinking about or scanning your body yourself as it were from your head to your toes or vice versa and at each stage just stop and think about that the forehead the nose the eyes etc all down the body and just spend a couple of seconds thinking about that part of the body and what it does for you and sort of almost saying thanks to that part of the body for what it does you're showing a bit of gratitude Mm -hmm. if you do that for two or three scans, you will either be asleep before you finished or you'll be in a very rested place where as long as you can sort of welcome ideas as they come to you, but then sort of park them again and go back to your body scanning, you'll be in a very rested space. So that's not a technique that many people I know use, but it's certainly one I, I do promote. So that's one okay. idea I would suggest. Cool. Another is really around... If you give up coffee for, say, a month, we'll give up caffeine for a month, the benefits of that 
are that you probably get a much better sense of what your natural sleeping cycle is. Mm. Because if you are taking on caffeine, and most people don't know that the half-life of caffeine is six hours. In other words, if you have a cup of coffee at mm. lunchtime, the caffeine in that coffee, half of it is still in your system at six o'clock. Yeah. And a quarter of it is still in your system at midnight. Yeah. But people don't know that, right? A lot of people don't even know how much caffeine there is in black tea or even green tea. Mm. A number of people say to me, oh, I drink green tea. I said, well, do you know how much caffeine there is in green tea? Mm. You know, it's not truly herbal. It's got sort of a fair bit of caffeine in it. So I think an understanding of your caffeine intake, and the best way to do that is actually to go cold turkey and not, not have any for a month and just see mm. how much better you might be sleeping at the end and then gradually back reintroduce it if you wish to. The only caveat I give to people when they do that is watch out for the migraines. Yeah. Because it could take yeah. you three or four days. So maybe give it up on a Wednesday and expect by about Friday that you're going to be having quite a hard day and you know, organize a light weekend mm. to cope with it because it could be quite painful. Yeah. So those are, those are a couple of things. Have I got time okay. for one more? Yes, if it's a quick one. If it's a quick one, I think Epsom salt baths are fantastic because they mm. contain magnesium and they're a great way to unwind. Yeah. Agreed. You can get topical magnesium as well, can't you? Which you can spray onto the body, but the benefits of a bath and for what I understand, it'd be good to get your opinion quickly on this, a bath around 60 to 90 minutes before bed, just so you can lower your body temperature by the time you get into bed. Is that something you agree with? Yes, I would agree with that. I personally haven't found the timing to be so material for me, but from what I've read, that sounds about right. Yeah. Okay. Brilliant. So Body scanning in the morning, which you could also do before bed, moderating or eliminating caffeine altogether, and then the Epsom salts in the bath, which is a lovely way, I think, to cap off the day. Fantastic. There is a load more in the book, which is Positive Sleep, Holistic Approach to Resolve Sleep Issues and Transform Your Life by Giles Watkins. It's published by LID. So that's available now. Your social media links, Giles, are you're on LinkedIn as Giles Watkins. That's right. LinkedIn.com forward slash in forward slash Giles Watkins. Instagram at Giles underscore the underscore sleep underscore guru. I'll put links to all of that. I'll put links to your book as well in the show notes. So just remains for me to say thank you. Continue to sleep well and promote this this very positive message. And uh, all the best. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, www.bodyshotperformance.com and click on Take the Test. It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals, sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion, and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.